This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from the UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. Each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international academic and industry leaders to discuss the most compelling issues affecting Ireland and the world. Each week, we aim to offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. For those of you wondering who this new voice is, my name is Richard Morano, and I'll be hosting this special episode from across the Atlantic here in New York. The always on point Emmett Oliver will be back to host the next episode from Dublin. For some background, I graduated from the Masters in Finance program at the Smurfett School of Business at UCD in 2018. Since graduating, I've maintained regular contact with my classmates all over the world and routinely meet over virtual calls to discuss what's happening in each other's lives and the world around us. One of the topics we discussed was the economic world and how it would look during and after the pandemic. We stumbled upon the concept of modern monetary theory and thought it would be wise to speak with an expert in the field of MMT. Fast forward to today. In this episode, I will be speaking with Randall Ray, a professor of economics at the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College here in New York. Professor Ray focuses on monetary theory and policy, macroeconomics, financial instability, and employment policy. Professor Ray has been a pioneer in the field of MMT, and we are truly lucky to be speaking with him today. So without further ado, pour yourself a cup of coffee, tea, or whatever you prefer, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. Professor Ray, welcome to the Business Impact Podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. Getting through this, uh, hopefully the last leg of this pandemic relatively soon. Uh, that sounds too optimistic. <laughs> well, you're an economist. Don't you have to be optimistic? Um, once in a while, I am. <laughs> well, I appreciate you making some time for us today. We've been speaking over the last several months, actually, about getting a time on the calendar to speak about um, modern monetary theory. And I I'm in New York, so in, in true New York fashion, we might as well just, you know, get down to brass tacks and start talking about some modern monetary theory. Now, I'm not an economist, although I did study a bit of it um, in college. But for any of us listening that are not economists that have heard possibly about modern monetary theory or are just kind of looking at the way that countries are combating the pandemic economy. How would you describe in as simple fashion as possible what modern monetary theory is? Okay, well, first, let me say maybe it's an advantage that you didn't study much economics uh, because the, the problem with the way most economists approach um, say, national government spending is uh, to use the household analogy. Households face budget constraints, and they are very constraining, uh, at least for most people. Um, our argument is that uh, the a national government that issues its own sovereign currency is actually nothing like a household or a firm. There are, there's no analogy that is valid there. Um, so, what MMT has tried to do over the past 25 years is to look at you know, how a national government like the United States or Japan or the UK and on and on and on and on, uh, how they really spend um, and what difference it makes if you issue your own sovereign currency. I can define it uh, in a bit more detail if you want. Um, and uh, what kinds of constraints do you actually face? So that's what we've been focused on. So when the, the crisis hit, uh, suddenly uh, there was a, some people say, you know, come to Jesus uh, point when governments around the world said, hey, you know, this is a very, very deep uh, downturn uh, with no end in sight and we need to do something. And so they sort of reversed the course of the past 50 years and they started ramping up 
uh, fiscal policy, uh, saying that monetary policy cannot do this. It cannot deal with this problem. And some of them even said, now we're going to try MMT, um, which is uh, pretty humorous for us that um, in the crisis, you know, suddenly they're all true believers. And uh, after 25 years of criticizing us, if they had ever heard of us at all, um, suddenly they're embracing what they think is MMT. Um, And so it's very nice to get the publicity, uh, but what they claim to be MMT is not MMT. They are not suddenly doing MMT. They might be using MMT to justify what they're doing. Uh, but it, it, this is not MMT. I see. So from my understanding and looking at recent actions here in the States at the the Fed and the Treasury, when a government issues or, you know, passes a, a spending bill like the, you know, for example, just this past weekend, the $1.9 trillion bill was just passed in the States. So that $1.9 trillion, where does that come from? Well, it comes from uh, a budget authorization that uh, allows spending $1.9 trillion. And of course, it's divided up into a, a large number of different programs. So th- that gives the go-ahead to go ahead and spend. So we have authorized the spending And now over the course of uh, next year and maybe a bit longer, um, we will undertake the spending. Um, There's no special way that the government needs to spend now. It's going to spend the way it is always spent. And um, uh, that is largely by cutting checks, issuing checks. I mean, a lot of us uh, Americans are going to get checks in the mail. Um, that we take to our bank, we deposit at the bank, the bank credits our demand deposit, they send the check on to the Fed, and the Fed credits the bank reserves. That's how governments spend. And since the creation of the Fed in 1913, that is how the Treasury spends. Now, increasingly, it's keystrokes. So we can bypass the paper. We don't need paper checks. Um, they can credit a bank's reserves and that bank can credit your demand deposit if you are, say, uh, a contractor that is um, uh, under contract by the federal government uh, to do something. And that's how they get paid. That, that's I how see. the government spends. It credits bank accounts. So this image in my head of Janet Yellen calling the, you know, the mint and saying, "Hey, we're going to need 1.9 trillion dollars of more money." That's that's just not how it works. In the 19th century, yes. In the 19th century, they actually printed up uh, treasury notes, uh, pieces of paper. Um, our notes today are all Fed notes, of course. Uh, treasury notes haven't been issued for a very long time. But in the old days, yes, they actually physically printed up the notes. And if you go back farther in time. The crown would uh, raise a tally. We still have that term, right? Raise a tally. Uh, they would notch Hazelwood tally sticks. That's how they spent, with tally sticks. So now I'm thinking all of this money is being quote-unquote created, right? It's not paper currency that's coming into circulation, but it is more money in existence, right? Yeah, deposit accounts have been credited, and we can call that money if you want. So now, of course, the big concern with that from, you know, my point of view, having not nearly the depth of understanding that you do is, you know, isn't that going to cause inflation? I mean, it's an increase in the money supply. That's like, you know, kind of the way that it makes sense to me. But, you know, what is what is the effect on inflation? that MMT has. Okay, so MMT, what I just gave you was a description of the way the government really spends, okay? So there's nothing theoretical about that. It's a description, it's true. This is the way the government spends. Bernanke said the same thing before Congress uh, when he was asked, where did you get those trillions of dollars you used to bail out the banks after the global financial crisis? He said, keystrokes. It's all (laughs) keystrokes, okay? Now, the link to inflation, 
Um, the, the way we get inflation is um, when the government is spending, it's creating income. Okay, I might receive a check. That is my income. Now, if I run out and spend that check and I start buying things for which the supply is limited, it's possible that the price will be bid up. Okay? And if that happened to a lot of different items that people are buying, we measure that through the CPI, the basket of consumer goods. If lots of those items go up in price, uh, we will call that inflation. Okay? So the question, it's not really the money supply that's gone up. It's whether that increase of income will cause us to increase our spending and they will come up against production constraints that lead to price increases. It's not the money by itself. If all that money is created and it sits in our demand deposit accounts and none of us spends any of it, it's not going to cause any inflation. Okay? Mm -hmm. It will only cause inflation if we start spending it. And this is just as true when the government creates the income or when the private sector creates the income. The question will be, how much does that increase our spending? You know, if I get a wage increase, I also have an increase of income. If I run out and spend it, and lots of us have wage increases and run out and spend it, we can cause inflation too. So there's nothing special about the government checks over uh, private sector checks. The question is how much will be spent? Now, I know some people have been raising this inflation issue. I think it's highly implausible that we're going to get much inflation from this. Uh, we didn't get any inflation from the Trump checks that went out. Okay, And a uh, closer investigation found what people did with that was they paid bills and they increased their saving. They paid down debt. You know, people had rent that was overdue. They had student loan payments that were overdue. They paid down some debt, paid some bills, increased their saving, increased spending a little bit. That's what happened last time. Most of what's in this package, I would not call stimulus at all. It's relief. It's relief. People have lost their jobs. They're way behind in their rent and mortgages. Uh, the shopkeepers are behind in their mortgages. Most of this is going to go to pay old bills. It's not going to lead to an increase of spending, not going to lead to inflation. Yeah, and I think that's a really important distinction, stimulus versus relief, and I completely agree with you. So now, in the reality of the year 2021, I would say most economies right now are operating at below their potential level. So as the economy approaches their potential output level, how does that impact the dynamics of modern monetary theory? Do we go from a system where we are funding relief from the federal government to a system where it's more of a free market economy? Well, look, uh, so far we've only been talking about what we call the injections into the income flow. There's also a major leakage out of the income flow. That is tax payment. Okay, so when we the pandemic hit and the economy slowed way down and unemployment went way up, tax revenues fell through the floor. So a lot of the relief is going to state and local governments to school districts and so on because they've lost their tax revenue. So we're going to give some relief there. But let's let's suppose that this package works. We put a floor to how bad this recession is going to be, and we start growing out of it. Tax revenue will start growing rapidly. That's what happens in all of our recoveries. Um, the uh, tax revenue, uh, if we start growing at a reasonably robust pace, say 4% growth rate, uh, tax revenue could grow four times that much maybe five times that much, based on what has happened over the past 25 years. That's my guess. So tax revenue is going to start really ramping up. That sucks income out of the economy. That will start to slow us down. That will take away some of that inflation pressure. 
This is called an automatic stabilizer. And uh, I know people hate taxes, but this is what you want the tax system to do to prevent the inflation. Okay, you don't want to boom forever. You, you've got to peak, you know. And if you look at our tax system, uh, in spite of all the, um, uh, the various kinds of tax cuts over the past 20 years, our tax system is still pretty good at taking income out when we're growing at a reasonably good pace. So that's part of the answer. The other part is <clears throat> that you want the spending to also slow down. So the government injections into the economy, you want those to slow down as we start to recover. And some of those automatically will, like unemployment compensation relief. Uh, That kind of spending is going to slow down as we start recovering. So I think the automatic stabilizers will do what they've been doing uh, uh, over the the recent past in recoveries. And uh, I still think very unlikely that we're going to get much inflation. I see. So that automatic stabilizer of just the function of of taxation itself will take some of the hot air out of the inflation risk. So my question is, through the lens of MMT, does some of this money, and full disclosure, I I obviously have not looked through this, this latest bill that has been passed, but is some of that money going toward filling the gap in state tax revenue that has been lost from the depression in the economy? Yes, uh, there is relief for state and local governments and um, uh, school districts. I didn't see the final version. Uh, In the earlier version, there were several hundred billion dollars. So um, yes, it's helping to fill that gap. And, you know, we know that the costs of school districts have gone up in the pandemic because it's expensive to gear up to run uh, you know, both in class, in person classes and Zoom classes and dealing with and, you know, the learning curve of how you do this. It's been a very expensive process. So, yes, they need the money. So theoretically, with this automatic stabilizer of taxation, could the deficit in a currency issuing country essentially continue to grow indefinitely as long as inflation does not get out of control? Uh, No, it can't. (laughs) So people do these, uh, economists do these simple mathematical exercises where they demonstrate supposedly that if the interest rate is above the growth rate, then uh, the deficit will continue to rise because you have to pay all that interest. And that means the debt ratio will rise toward infinity over an infinite period of time. Okay, the whole exercise is ridiculous. In the first place, infinity is a very long time and it doesn't make any sense to worry about what's going to happen. Infinity, (laughs) infinite years from today. Um, But more importantly, it's it's exactly uh, what we've been talking about. Uh, Deficits are self-limiting because they stimulate growth, which gets the growth rate above that interest rate, uh, and that will reduce uh, the trajectory of the debt ratio. Um, and eventually, um, the, the thing will likely uh, turn around. Now, the, second, the, the, the final point on these exercises is they either assume that the interest rate will remain above the growth rate um, because the interest rate will is something natural that's just you know given from the from heaven, um, or they assume that uh, the deficit will push the interest rate up even more and make the problem even worse. But actually, the interest rate is completely under the control of the central bank. So if we really want the interest rate below the growth right. rate. As long as the the growth rate is positive, the central bank can always get the interest rate below the growth rate. They can set it as zero, as they've been doing since the global financial crisis. Got it. So essentially, there's some level where the deficit will start to diminish in size. Yes. You can try this at home. (laughs) You can plot the growth rate against the deficit ratio. And you will see you do these loop-de-loops. 
Okay, it goes up in recession. And then as we start to grow, the deficit ratio automatically comes down every time. Okay, try it at home. It's a fun thing to plot. All right, good. So if we don't need federal tax in order to spend, what is the point of federal tax? Okay, well, we've been discussing a very important role. That is to take income out of the economy, to take the income out so that spending doesn't get to be too great uh, and cause inflation. Uh, There are a number of other um, uh, reasons to have taxes. Okay, Uh, so we tax sin, sin taxes. We try to, um, you know, change behavior through taxes. we a lot of progressives have been calling for high taxes on the rich to try to reduce inequality, um, but uh, the most important one and, and none of these are controversial. I, I mean, they may be politically, but uh, the 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 role that taxes play in doing that aren't controversial. Um, so there's nothing MMT about that. MMT's contribution has been to to argue that what you observe when a a new nation is formed, say the Soviet Union breaks apart or the United States wins its revolutionary war and leaves the UK, uh, the the typical case for the past 6,000 years has been every new nation starts its own currency. Okay, there are a few exceptions, but not very many. Almost always, a new nation always adopts its a new currency, and they impose an obligation in that currency to make sure the population will accept it. Okay, so if I start a new nation and I'm the king, and I say I want to issue a new currency, okay, how can I be sure that the population will accept it? Well, the method that has been adopted is to impose an obligation payable in your currency. So this is what sovereigns do. In the old days, it usually was fees and fines, sometimes tribute, sometimes tithes when the authorities were religious authorities. Uh, For the past 200 years, it's mostly taxes. So you impose a tax to create a demand for your currency. Okay, so this is the, you know, from time immemorial, this is how sovereigns get their currency accepted. And now that is, you know, essentially the definition of chartalism, right? It's sort of the state-imposed tax um, in order to force the, the use of the state-issued currency. Yes, right. And when, when you deliver back the sovereign's own currency, we have a word for that. It's called redemption, and it has a religious connotation because all of these these terms that have something to do with debt came out of religion. Um, in the American colonies, uh, the uh, the colonies were not allowed to stamp coins because Britain wanted the colonies to use the British coins. The colonial governments were always short of coins for spending. So they hit on the idea of printing up paper money, paper notes. Uh, Paper notes had a long history in China, but in the West, uh, this was the first big example of paper notes. And uh, they completely understood what I just described because what they would do is they would pass a new law that authorized printing, let's say 10,000 Virginia pounds of notes. At the same time, they would impose a new tax called in the law, a redemption tax. You redeem the currency, okay? So people have to pay this tax. They deliver the notes to pay the tax. They are redeemed, okay? The people are redeemed. They don't owe a tax. The currency is redeemed. The, uh, the colonial government is no longer in debt. And then they burn all the currency. You burn your revenue in redemption. So what are you doing? You're taking it out of circulation so it can't cause inflation. Okay? They understood all of this. 
We've forgotten it uh, in large part because now we have two degrees of separation between you and the sovereign. We have a central bank and we have a private bank. So as I was saying at the very beginning, modern governments don't spend by printing up notes. They have a central bank and they have a bank. And all the payments are made through those two entities. And this obscures the nature of our relationship with the sovereign government. Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly hearing um, two things. It's sort of, you know, death and taxes are the only two constants in life. And the tax part of that equation has always been, like you said, obscure to me. Um, My understanding of paying taxes before coming across modern monetary theory has always been, well, I'm paying this federal tax because the roads need repair and the bridges need building. Um, But of course, you know, after discussing MMT, that that's, of course, not the case. So talk to me a little bit about um, the role of MMT and how countries that don't issue their own currency, how their economic framework compares in terms of advantages and disadvantages because it seems to me especially looking through this this current crisis that we're in that the the tool of mmt has been tremendously useful for currency issuing um, countries so in countries that don't issue their own currency are they at you know a, a bigger disadvantage because of that um yes they are now let's be clear there uh, for a fully to have a fully sovereign currency, you not only issue your own currency, you don't promise to peg it to gold, which we call the gold standard, or to a foreign currency. So many countries issue their own currency, but they peg to the U.S. dollar or maybe to a, a basket of currencies, and so they they are more constrained uh, unless they are. Um, uh, China, Japan, Singapore, um, uh, if they peg to the dollar, they have to worry whether they have enough dollars to, to meet the promise to convert their currency at a fixed exchange rate to the dollar. So they have to operate their economies in a way that ensures dollars are always flowing in. That can constrain you. You may purposely uh, keep your uh, economy growing more slowly to make sure that imports don't rise. So countries that, that peg have to be very careful to make sure that they actually have the foreign currency because effectively all of the government's liabilities are converted convertible to dollars. Okay, So even though they have their own currency, they're really not free because they have to have dollars to back them up. All right. Um, and that constrains them. Now, if you issue your own currency and you do not peg it, you, uh, that doesn't mean you can't convert it. It's just that you don't convert at any fixed exchange rate. Uh, then you have uh, what we call domestic policy space. You can use fiscal policy and monetary policy in order to mobilize your domestic resources to accomplish whatever the public interest is, okay? Um, And so that applies equally to a country like the United States, but also to a uh, less developed, a developing country that issues its own currency that doesn't peg. Now, that is only good for domestic resources. You may not be able uh, to have access to foreign resources if you're a small developing country. In the case of the United States, the whole world wants dollars. So we not only can mobilize all of our domestic resources, we can also mobilize international resources, okay? Um, That may not be true for other countries. Now, the U.S. isn't the only country that issues uh, an international reserve currency, so even Australia, you know, which is a much smaller country than the United States, not a, not a very large country in terms of population, um, they run current account deficits like we do. Um, they have access 
to international resources, just like we do, because uh, global portfolios want some Australian dollars in their portfolios. So they, they issue an international reserve currency, not on the scale of the U.S. dollar, but uh, they have access to external resources, just like we do. Yeah. And um, for countries that are in a monetary union, it, it seems like MMT doesn't work the same way because in countries such as the US or the UK or Australia, they can domestically pass spending bills, whereas countries in monetary unions have to go through sort of like an approval process, right? Uh, well, I, I know you want to get, it sounds like you want to get to the EMU. And we, we warned from the very beginning that there were problems in the way they had set it up. So supposedly um, the, the center, whether it's the European Parliament or the ECB, is not going to bail out a country that gets in trouble. So that's written into the master criteria. And therefore, individual countries are responsible uh, for uh, themselves, for their own budgets, for their own debts, and so on. And so the Maastricht uh, Treaty uh, set uh, deficit limits, uh, 3%, and debt ratio limits of 60%. Uh, they were uh, sort of pulled out of the air. There was, uh, you know, impossible to come up with a specific number that would have been safe. Uh, but aside, these, these are probably safe for a country uh, that has given up its own currency and adopted uh, the euro. Uh, we warned at the time that uh, those deficit and debt ratios were far too high for a country like Italy that had given up its own currency. We, we made the analogy to uh, United States states. Uh, if you looked at the debt ratio of the most indebted state in terms of the state's own GDP, so state government debt uh, relative to the state's own GDP, the most indebted states had debt ratios of, of about 17% of GDP. Okay, Every member but one of the euro had a debt ratio higher than that, and Italy was 100%. So he said their debt ratios are already far too high. 60% is far too high. Um, as soon as uh, there is um, some kind of a serious crisis, uh, this will be exposed. There will be a run against that member. Um, Warren Moser said the crisis will start in the financial sector. I think in 2000 or 2001, he wrote a paper stating that. Turned out exactly correct. Uh, they they had a, a financial crisis, uh, began a little bit later than ours. Ours began in 2007. They started out exactly the same. They both started because of an overheated housing bubble in Europe and in the United States. Then uh, we sort of dealt with ours. We, we did have a stimulus, and we had a huge intervention by the Fed. Uh, in Europe, they couldn't get a stimulus because the European Parliament didn't have the fiscal power to do that, and they couldn't get uh, the ECB to do anything because the ECB was not supposed to bail them out. And so their crisis was much more severe and long-lasting than ours and kept going on and on and on until finally Draghi said, whatever it takes, the ECB will do whatever it takes. That stopped the crisis. Okay, so... Uh, just make a long story short, yes, the way that they had set up the euro uh, made it uh, really unworkable. There was no way that an individual nation could deal with its crisis since it had given up its currency. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So maybe that's a good segue towards, you know, psychologically, this introduction, or for many MMT economists, the uh, the eventual realization of MMT. I'm just wondering what the the psychological shift would be from operating from a more free market economy where businesses that are unable to 
continue as a going concern fail. Shifting toward, you know, an MMT world where, as we've seen lately, the Federal Reserve and the the federal government will come in to support businesses. So, of course, this is, you know, a force majeure, an act of God, whatever you want to call it, with the pandemic and businesses that were sustainable, you know, in any other circumstance, you you could argue that, well, they need help and they deserve help and they deserve the support. And I'm not arguing against that. But in my mind, that is the short term. Right now, there are real people that are in real need and there's tremendous pain throughout the economy. So once the dust settles and the economy grows to be back toward its full potential level, are we going to be left with companies and sectors of the economy that maybe shouldn't have existed in the fashion that they do at the end of the you know, tunnel when we're finally seeing light? Are we going to see companies that are you know, standing on, you know, one leg and supported by the government that, you know, now that MMT and the the federal um, spending bills aren't as readily available, you know, are those businesses going to fail? Okay, so what MMT uh, teaches is that a sovereign uh, national government doesn't need to worry about where the finance will come from. Okay, finance is not the issue. Resources are the issue. Okay, so you can always use national government spending to mobilize your resources. You can always keep your resources fully employed. That includes human resources, so labor, uh, but also your um, capital resources, uh, your infrastructure, both public and private. You can keep those uh, fully employed. And, uh, you know, you can direct them to expanding capacity, too. So you can uh, increase the quantity of resources that are available. Okay. MMT doesn't necessarily tell you, uh, you know, which resources uh, are worth saving, which firms are worth saving, which activities you ought to be engaged in. By itself, MMT doesn't tell you those things. Okay, now uh, I think the the MMT advocates uh, do have ideas about what we should be spending on, but MMT by itself does not do that. Th- let me back up and say I think there are three policies that follow uh, very directly from understanding how the sovereign government spends. So what MMT is all about. Three policies. The first is central banks can and should and do set the overnight interest rate target. Okay? So in the U.S., that's the Fed funds rate. Uh, When we started 25 years ago, believe it or not, that was um, controversial. It's not controversial anymore. Everybody accepts that. That's how central banks operate. They set the overnight rate target. Okay, and they've been running around zero for quite a while. Okay, so we don't we don't necessarily tell you what the target should be, but we tell you this is the way central banks operate. They don't control the money supply, which was the old belief when we were um, developing uh, MMT. It was a very common belief that's not accepted by any central bankers anymore. They know that's not true. They do not cannot determine the money supply. Most of the money is created by private banks. Okay? The second policy is a floating exchange rate. Now, I don't mean free float. I don't mean, you know, completely market determined. But you don't announce exchange rate targets. Okay? You let the currency move. That follows because otherwise you don't really have a sovereign currency. If you're promising to convert, for the reason I said before... Uh, essentially, the government is promising to deliver the foreign currency, not its own. So you're not really sovereign. The third is the job guarantee. The job guarantee is necessary um, 
So it, it goes beyond humanitarian concerns and all that, you know, which is that um, if you live in a capital society where most people are expected to work for a living, you must supply jobs to them. It's not the private sector's business to ensure full employment. The private sector hires people if it will be profitable. Okay, that's not a critique of them. That's capitalism. If it's not profitable, the private sector will not hire them. Okay, so there's no reason to believe the private sector is going to be in the business of ensuring full employment, and uh, they're not, <laughs> and they don't. Okay, so the government has to pick up the slack. So you know that's sort of the the humanitarian human rights angle. But it goes beyond that. For MMT, remember, taxes create a demand for money. If we impose taxes, we can be assured that the population will accept our currency because they have to have it to pay the tax. But that doesn't tell us what the currency will be worth. Okay? Uh, and so MMT has developed this notion that you need a buffer stock. A buffer stock... Uh, to give uh, and to stabilize the value of the currency. So you can think of the gold standard as a buffer stock. Okay, that is a way to establish the currency. In spite of what people uh, were taught or believe, gold standards are very rare and they never last long. You can maybe last a generation. They always end very badly, always. Great depressions, uh, kind of bad. Okay. You can use a reserve army of the unemployed. That was Marx's term. He wasn't advocating it. He, was just, he just said, this is the way capitalism operates. A reserve army of the unemployed to keep wages in check. Uh, and uh, today, uh, it's called uh, the NIRU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. So unemployed people are not a policy problem. They are a policy solution. This is the way orthodox economics views the unemployed. They're a solution to the inflation problem. You cause unemployment to keep inflation in check. Okay? Well, we argue that uh, first, that's not a very effective buffer stock. And second, it leads to unnecessary waste of human resources. So, we advocate a, a third buffer stock, a buffer stock of the employed, and that is what a job guarantee program is. It's a buffer stock of employed people who are available to be hired whenever the private sector finds a uh, useful, uh, profitable, potentially profitable use for those workers. So that's the idea, job guarantee, helps to stabilize the wage and prices. I see. So the current system with the NIRU, the not say that one more time. NIRU. Non, yeah. <laughs> the non-accelerating <laughs> inflation, inflation rate, rate of, of unemployment. unemployment. Yes. All right. I got to write that down on my fridge. So the way that works now essentially is that they are they meaning I guess just the government or society kind of utilizes this natural rate of unemployment to to moderate inflation is that is that yeah. the way to look at it yeah i mean you can you can read the minutes of the FOMC the fed meetings where they're deciding whether to raise the interest rate target or lower the interest rate target what what they do is they they look at the unemployment rate and they discuss it the uh, if you read the fed minutes You'll, you'll see there's a discussion of the unemployment rate. And you can, uh, you, you can tell uh, from the, um, the transcription that when the unemployment rate starts going down, the Fed officials start getting very nervous. They start worrying that inflation is around the corner. And so th that will cause them to raise the interest rate. If the unemployment rate remains low... Uh, they will keep the interest rate low. So they very closely watch the unemployment data uh, to determine monetary policy. So there's the belief that raising the interest rate will increase unemployment to keep inflation at bay. And they've been doing that since 1970. So, uh, you know, this is the policy. But also fiscal policy is constrained. 
because there is always the worry about the inflation rate. And we see that discussion right now with the Biden uh, package that there's a great fear by some that uh, too much spending will cause inflation. Okay, And the reason is because too much spending will increase employment too much and that will cause inflation. So it's not just monetary policy, but fiscal policy is also constrained by a perceived unemployment rate that is too low to keep inflation at bay. So in economics, it's called the Phillips curve idea, and it has dominated policymaking uh, since the late 1960s. So we argue that there's a better buffer stock than unemployed people. Let's employ them. Got it. So, so the alternative, and I'm trying to understand this, right? So essentially, um, MMT says that with this government guaranteed job program, that's a better way to buffer. For now, I want to focus on inflation. So how would the, the federal job guarantee act to moderate inflation in a way that right now the natural rate of unemployment does. Yeah, because the people in the job guarantee program are available to be hired. They are ready and willing to work. How do you know that? Because they are working. (laughs) They're showing up to work, okay? And the uh, private employer... uh, only has to offer a slightly higher wage or slightly better working conditions, slightly better benefits, or a a path to promotions in order to hire people away, okay? Um, If you take uh, someone who's unemployed, I'm sure that, you know, maybe you, you even experienced this, that employers don't really like to hire the unemployed. They would rather bid them away from another employer. Your first choice is to hire someone who already has a job. Why? Because you can see they're motivated. Okay? Uh, They are going to work. They, They must know how to get up in the morning. Okay? They probably don't have serious behavioral problems. And, you know, you can check, try to check those things. When you hire someone who's unemployed, and if they've been unemployed for six months or longer, what we call long-term unemployed, they are riskier and riskier. Employers don't want to take a chance on them. So what we're arguing is a large percentage of the people who are in that unemployed reserve army are not seen as being employable, okay, because they've been unemployed too long. Their, uh, their uh, work record uh, is sketchy. Uh, employers are afraid to hire them. So they really don't serve a useful purpose. They really are not part of a buffer stock. Okay? We're counting them as being unemployed. They don't have jobs. But they're not really helping to keep inflation in check because they're not really employable. On the other hand, the people in the job guarantee program are showing up to work. They've got a work record. The uh, government employer can uh, make all of that available uh, for the recruiters from the private sector. So we argue that if anything, they are much more employable and a much better buffer stock. Got it. So then if everyone has a job, whether it's a government guaranteed job or a private sector job. Wouldn't that cause inflation to increase because there's more people with more income? And if everyone has a job, everyone's going to be buying things. Isn't that going to cause prices to increase? Well, the first, it depends on, on where you set the wages. If you um, uh, set the wages at a, a low level, Uh, you're not necessarily boosting demand at all. So it's a policy choice, and you have to decide uh, how much more demand can the economy uh, sustain. Now, I don't think actually there is any danger that enacting a a job guarantee uh, program 
by itself will be inflationary. Uh, we at the Levy Institute we did a simulation about two years ago. Uh, obviously, the unemployment rate was not where it is now, so we were implementing when uh, we counted about 15 million people uh, who were likely to accept a job guarantee uh, job in the program. Uh, we were going to phase in a $15 an hour uh, program wage into this. Um, and we used a, the FAIR model, which is a, a model commonly used by economists. Plug all of this in, 15 million people in the job guarantee program, all of them earning $15 an hour and so on. And the inflation barely even had a tiny blip and it very quickly settled back down. Uh, it was less than one percentage point above the baseline forecast of inflation. Um, so it, it has very little impact on inflation, even with a very generous wage. Got it. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe it's because, like you said, this these latest rounds of spending from the federal government, people in the economy have been using to, you know, pay rent and pay things that, that are necessities in life as opposed to, you know, going out and, and buying a new car or buying a new house or something like that. And, you know, what I will say is based on my very basic understanding of MMT, it sounds to me like the the federal job guarantee is really a crucial element to MMT. And especially now more than ever, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, the unemployment level in in the states, particularly just just because, you know, I, I live here. Um, I know several smart, hardworking people that were working at a firm that just didn't have the black swan resources available to keep everyone employed. And I mean, you know, we talk about all of these economic variables and of course, just a, on a human level, I mean, these are, these are hardworking, smart, honest people that by no action of their own lost their job and are now in an incredibly competitive unemployment market. I mean, you have, you have individuals with multiple degrees and work experience. And I mean, that's a tough market. And from what I'm hearing, the longer people go unemployed, the less likely they are to find another private sector job. So that in and of itself makes me think that this, this job guarantee program, you know, does MMT even work if there is no job guarantee program? Well, it will work. Um, look, MMT is a description, okay? So we've been doing MMT all along in the sense that the government has been spending by crediting bank accounts, okay? Uh, we argue the economy would have been much better if you had a job guarantee, which is, you know, the, the main uh, fiscal policy that we recommend. So those people you're talking about, they would have fallen out of the private sector and they would be working in a job guarantee program at $15 an hour. Now it's a pay cut, uh, but uh, they have something to fall back on. So they remain employed and they also have an income. Unlike the, the Trump stimulus package or the Biden stimulus package, again, they should be called relief, not stimulus, but unlike those programs, a job guarantee program is targeted. It's targeted to the people who want to work but can't find a job. So it's very well targeted. And what it means is it's a very efficient kind of spending. Rather than mailing a check to every family in America, which is what Trump did, and which is what Biden's going to do, we spend the money on people who can't find jobs. So, you know, there are a lot of people like me who can do our job on the internet, right? Uh, pretty hard to, to say we've been really negatively impacted 
by the pandemic, except in social isolation and all that, and dealing with the, the kids' school. But in terms of e- income, we haven't been impacted, but they're mailing people like us checks. Uh, we don't really need them. So what I'm saying is a, a job guarantee program, in terms of the, the gross numbers, is going to be very, very small. Job guarantee programs are estimated at between 1% and 3% of GDP. Very small. Uh, the, um, the Biden stimulus package, in quotes, uh, is getting up toward 10% of GDP. Okay, and this, this is, a, you know, a, a wide variety of kinds of programs, um, but it, uh, it may be five times bigger than what we would need if we were targeting the unemployed. That's really interesting. That is, yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it sounds like the federal job guarantee, like you said, is way more targeted. And of course, you know, I've heard from various sources of of uh, displeasement with, you know, where the money is going with the latest rounds of stimulus. And do we really need to be funding this much money? And, you know, a, a job guarantee program, I think, sounds like it's it's a great solve for that issue. So just want to wrap up. Um, I know that, or I believe that the default in America seems like it's, it's, um, focused on intervention. I'm, I'm just thinking back, of course, I wasn't alive during the great depression, but thinking back to the great depression, the remedy for that was the new deal, large federal spending. In 2008, the remedy, although a different cause, the remedy was spending. And now in 2021, the remedy again is intervention and is spending. And we're still here. I mean, things have changed. Life has changed. But we seem to be, you know, figuring out ways to work through this. And intervention, government intervention has been a central element to that recovery. Are there any examples that you can think of? where there has been an economic crisis and countries have gone a different route where there has been no intervention and they essentially let the animal spirits of the free market run wild. I'm, I'm sure that there are, um, you know, I don't, I think Brazil is doing that, but I have to admit, you know, I am not deeply into the details of what's going on in Brazil. But I think it, it largely is that government hands off, let the the private part of the economy deal with it, and it, it's a disaster. But you know, we sort of did that in the United States before FDR came in. So before Roosevelt, that that pretty much was the response. Who who had some small programs that uh, Roosevelt. Uh, built on and built up. Um, so I, I don't want to say Hoover did nothing, but it was mostly a hand, hands-off approach, and we got worse and worse and worse until Roosevelt came in uh, and started implementing the, the New Deal. Now, was that the dynamic also, you know, I'm thinking about the 1800s and the industrial era where there was a lot less regulation and a lot of market dynamics were dictated by the titans of industry, such as John Rockefeller and Cornelius Vanderbilt. And I mean, the result of that dynamic were unfair work environments and monopolies. So is that really like the default case study on a more hands-off economic policy? We also had five depressions in the 19th century. So everyone remembers the 1930, the Great Depression. That was our last depression, and it was the sixth one, <laughs> okay? So that's sort of when the era of, oh, government is not going to allow that to happen again, started with FDR, and we've not let it happen again. We, we've let things go bad, but not like a depression. So yeah, I think that the, the evidence is pretty strong that the hands-off approach didn't work. There was a depression every generation, in the, the 19th century, okay? And then we had one in the 20th, and we said, we're not gonna let that happen again, and we haven't. So yeah, I think that um, 
the evidence is pretty strong that the hands-off uh, is not good. The, the depressions could last a very long time. 19, 1870 and 1890s were depression decades, and things were very bad. Well, Professor Ray, I want to thank you for your time. I, I have to admit, you've left me feeling very optimistic about the future, given the fact that we have such brilliant minds, such as yourself, working on these complex issues. So I appreciate you, you making time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. And, uh, and I think that just about wraps it up for us. Okay, thanks. <laughs>